we come to the scripture, let me ask you please then uh, to pray with me, Father in heaven. Please, I pray, strengthen us who are weak, humble us who are proud. Enable us by your word to receive grace and strength uh, to know who it is that we are in you, that we may hear you and respond. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Isaiah in chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, please. Hear the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations... Excuse me. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Do you know if you've been with us? I've been talking through uh, the last month or so, prayers of confession. I don't normally do topical stuff uh, and uh, get away from it next week uh, where we'll take up this prophet Malachi. I wanted to work through these prayers of confession in preparation, really, pull us through the summer, but preparation for getting us to this prophet Malachi who, who really writes, thematically writes about worship. That is how it is that we as a people declare the worth of God. Not just here, Sundays, but 24-7. How does that, how do we do that? What's that really mean? And he'll talk that through uh, in the way that an Old Testament prophet does and can. So that's coming up. 
But these prayers of confession sort of prep us for that because what we find here is various men, as we've looked at David and Daniel and Job and now Isaiah, various men find themselves in the presence of God. And with David, he violated the law of God. And we saw his prayer of confession in Psalm 51 where he appeals to the mercy of God, that God would blot out his transgressions, that God would wash him, that God would cleanse him, that God would create in him a clean heart, renew in him a right spirit, and uphold him, that is, sustain him by giving him a willing spirit spirit, a spirit willing to follow after God. And then we looked at Daniel, and Daniel's situation was one where he'd been reading of the covenant promises of God, how God was going to bless his people, and realized that his people didn't care, realized his people were in no position to really receive the blessing of God. They were, they were sort of forgetting or ignoring God. They were quite content where they were in exile in Babylon. And, and Daniel could see that because of the sin of the people, And because God then had judged them and exiled them and that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, laid waste, that the nations around were scorning the name of God. And that broke Daniel's heart. And he realized that he, with the people, as one who had sinned against God, was responsible for God's name being blasphemed among the nations. And so he pled on the mercy of God that God would forgive the people's sins, restore them, rebuild Jerusalem, so that God's name would be great once again on the face of the earth. And then Job. We found Job was called by God to suffer the question before him, really. He didn't even know that was the question. But the question before him, would a man worship God for nothing? All was taken from him. And when all was taken from him and Job saw God, his answer was yes, I'll worship you for nothing. Even though you've taken everything away. In fact, he says, I repent in dust dust and ashes. I repent for ever thinking otherwise. Now we come to this prophet Isaiah. This is kind of the summary one. In fact, in fact, this passage, frankly, is the passage upon which we base our whole worship service, always have. It's the passage upon which we base how we worship corporately, and thus then we hope use, is used as a model to inform how we worship God 24-7. Because you see, here's Isaiah. He comes into the presence of God. When he comes into the presence of God, he sees the holiness of God. And seeing the holiness of God, he sees his own sin. He makes, in some sense, confession of his own sin. His sin is atoned for. And then he's able to listen. He's able to hear God and follow him. And that's how we come. That's, that's how we live our lives, in the very presence of God. So we come into worship. And, and the beginning of, of a worship service, a worship service where God is being worshipped, I always tell people we'd order our worship service exactly the same way if the congregation were filled with believers or filled with unbelievers. Because this is the way to enter into the presence of God for everybody and anybody. We always say Sunday morning is public worship. That means we invite everybody to come. God has made a day for all of his creation to stop and gaze upon him. And and, and everybody's supposed to do this, not just Christians. Of course, you can only really worship God through Jesus, so that's the deal. So we organize, we lay out this time of worship the this, this same. Somebody asked me to go lead a worship service of God in a mosque. 
I would bring our order of worship because this is the only way to do it. That is, we stop and we gaze upon God, His holiness. So we sing a song about the greatness, the holiness, the wonder, the majesty of God. We pray a prayer of invocation, which is a prayer that acknowledges the presence of God among us. We listen to Him call us to worship because it's His deal. It's His creation. It's His world. So He calls us to worship Him. All of that. Once really engaging in that, if we really engage in that, then the next step is to ask the question, how can I, a sinner, stand in the presence of God? And then we say, oh, only in Jesus. So trusting in him, the work of Christ, his atonement, we then pray and ask God to forgive us our sins, that we may be, live, stand in his presence. And we trust that we're forgiven because of, through the cross, the work, the blood of Jesus. And once all of that, you see, once we've done that, you see, once we've done that, when you make confession of your sin, whether you're dealing with it at the moment or not, we make confession of our sin. What we're saying is that on my very best day, you know how the sentence goes. You've heard me say this before. On my very best day, the best I can earn is hell. Thus, we are humbled in the very presence of God and the presence of each other. I not only admit that to God, but I admit that to my wife. I admit that to you. We admit that together. That's why we do it publicly. That's why we we find a voice here in a prayer of confession. So we, 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 we say this all together so that I know that you know that I know that you know that that's who we are. No matter how we're dressed, no matter the smile on our face, no matter any of that, that's just true of us. We're humbled. So then once we've admitted that, then we say to God, Please, fill my life. My life is empty. I bring nothing. I'm bankrupt. That's of the poor in spirit. I'm bankrupt here. So, so fill my life. So I pray that you would help me. And thus now our prayers are through this one who can really stand in the presence of God, Jesus. And we listen to his word attentively because we know we haven't anything unless he fills us with his word. And then in response to that, we say, of course, given that that following my way is wrong, I'll follow your way. So here am I, send me. And then we hear his blessing, his benediction, that final word of, of grace, that final word where he places his name upon us. And we leave this place with him on our minds. That's how we structure this, just like the prophet Isaiah. And so what we find with Isaiah is that it's this time of confession, this time when he realizes who he is in the presence of God that enables him then to hear from the Lord and obey, hear from the Lord and follow. The scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because once we stop fearing ourselves, once we stop admiring ourselves, once we stop worshiping ourselves, Once we start revering ourselves, then wisdom can begin if that reverence is then upon God. The scripture says that God resists the humble, but he gives grace to the, I'm sorry, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Because you see, the one who is humble is the person who says, I can't. And God says, oh, here. The proud is the person who says, I can, and God says, well, have it your way. 
He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The one who sees themselves as empty, who sees themselves as sinners, who sees themselves in need, comes to God and says, please. The one who doesn't, doesn't come to God. So you see, the, the way that we worship, just setting it up every Sunday is conditioning us to go out and live that way. When we wake up in the morning, we think of God and the holiness of God. We think of ourselves. We ask him to forgive us, to help us, and to say, speak to me. And we read his word, and we lay out our lives to say, fill us. So we pray, and then we say, all right, here am I. Help me. I'll go, and I'll bless you, serve you, worship you this day. That's the course of our lives. Bottom of the head. Let's, let's live with Isaiah for a minute. Here's Isaiah. It's 740-ish B.C. 740-ish B.C. The nation of Israel still split into two at that time. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet. His, his prophesying spans various kings, and he's in Judah, uh, and it happens to be the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah had been reigning for 52 years. How many presidents would that be? Do the math. So 52 years. There's some people on how Isaiah was at this time. There were people who knew no other king other than Uzziah. Right? He started when he was 16 years old reigning. And he was essentially a good king, except at the very end, he was filled up with pride, the scripture says, because of his, his accomplishments. So rather than giving thanks to God, he sort of took that on himself, and he sinned in the temple, actually, and God struck him with leprosy at the end of his life. So he had to live separately, and he couldn't go into the temple. But after all those years, 52 years, he's now, this is the year of his death. I don't know if Isaiah had that on his mind when he was seeing this vision entering the temple. Um, also, there was a, Assyria, the land of the north, that would come in not too many years, a couple of decades would come and destroy really the northern kingdom. That kingdom, Assyria, was gaining in strength. We don't know how much of that Isaiah knew at the time, but there he was, enters the temple, and his king dying dead, this king rising, but the king reigning. He saw him. He saw God. And what was most evident could only be expressed by the word holy. The, the holiness of God was, was, was revealed by what he saw. He saw God on a throne ruling and reigning. There he was. And he said the hem of his robe filled the temple. Um, think about it. I mean, how big does somebody have to be? for the end of the robe that they're wearing to fill a whole room like this. So he was God. And, and no wonder when that weight of God, the hugeness of God came into the temple that the foundations of the temple shook. So he sees him high and lifted up, exalted. Uh, and, and there's these seraphim that are... That are, that are flying around him. They're always on the move, ready to go at God's bidding. And, and so holy was God that they covered their face and they covered their feet and they're singing this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is filled with your glory. Now, when they sang holy, 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 it wasn't that they were just lyrically challenged. They couldn't think of any other words to say. What they were saying is <clears throat> that God is like none other. He's holiest of all. In Hebrew, the way that superlatives are uh, expressed uh, are by repetition. 
For instance, if, if you're reading in the scripture and you read this expression, that something was of pure gold, probably in Hebrew, it says it's gold, gold, right? It's the goldiest of gold. That's uh, how they would say it. If you wanted to compliment somebody, tell them they were the best, you would simply, you would say, you're pretty, pretty, right? Two in a row. This is three, only place. The only way to describe the holiness of God is to say that he's holy, holy, holy. There is none holier than God. He's the most holy. Now, this expression, holy, it's one of those words we use all the time, but we really don't know what it means. It just becomes common to us. We, we think we, we associate purity with holiness or perfection with holiness. And that's not wrong, but really the word holy means separate, other, even in this case, transcendent. It goes beyond all the bounds. We don't know anything like this. There is none other. So when God is spoken of as being holy, 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 it means that there isn't anyone like him. We've never seen the likes of him. We've never imagined the likes of him. And the word holy really isn't an attribute of God. We speak of the holiness of God that isn't one of his attributes. If you're taking a Bible quiz and they ask you to list the attributes of God, don't list holy. And the reason is, that holy informs all the other attributes of God. In other words, God's love is holy love. That is to say, there isn't any love like his. Great passage in Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And that sent that phrase there is to tell us, no one loves like this. You can't even imagine love like this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Human love, you might die for somebody you like. You might die for somebody who's good. Nobody dies for the people who hate him. Jesus did. That's holy love. That's the kind of love you go, wow. I've never seen that. I've never thought of that. His grace is holy. His wisdom is holy. His justice is holy. His mercy is holy. Every attribute of God that he has in himself is like none other. And so when these angels are flying around and Isaiah sees this, they're worshiping God not for anything that he's given to them per se. They're worshiping God because of who he is. They're captivated by him. He is holy. There isn't anyone like him. So that was the question to Job, remember. The question to Job was, will you love me for nothing? Or Will you only love me, as Satan said, because I give you all this stuff? See, loving God only for what he gives us, and I say only because we do love him, we do worship him for the good things that he gives us. He likes us to say thank you. We should. He gives us great blessings. But if we only worship him because of what we think he's going to give to us, then we're worshiping a kindly old grandfather. Explained grandfathers to you last Sunday. If you were here. Kindly grandfathers gives. You see the danger with that. Is that if you don't get what you think you should get. Then you no longer worship him. That was the point of Satan with Job. Will you worship me? For nothing. Sort of like when somebody marries someone else for their For their money. You hear a, a man marries a woman for his money or a woman marries a man for 
And for her money, a, a woman marries a man for his money. You hear that and you go, oh, that's bad. Why? Because you know when the money runs out or when that other spouse stops spending money on the other spouse, then, 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 then the marriage is going to end. And we've all heard this. Well, I used to believe in God, but I don't anymore because. And the because is normally because this happened or this didn't happen. Or I prayed for that and didn't get it. Or this occurred. Or, and it's always something like that. And, and, and so you see, oh, you simply were loving God for what he would give you again. We give him thanks. We love him because he is gracious to us. But there's something else that we must worship him for who he is. And that's what's happening this moment as Isaiah sees. He sees the very holiness of God, the intrinsic value of God. And he's saying he is holy. We catch a glimpse of this a little bit in our own lives. You know, when a baby's born, we're captivated by this child for a little while. Because that baby's holy. <clears throat> Nothing like that baby. Wow, we just can't get enough of that little child. And so that baby is holy. Or sometimes it's an athletic event. The shot, the holy shot. We can't stop talking about it. We can't stop replaying it. can't stop watching it. For a while. Because at that moment, it's holy. Uh, it may be an event, a historical event, when the man first walked on the moon. We, we couldn't get enough of that. We watched it and watched it and watched it and thought about it and talked about it. It was magnificent. It was holy. It was great. But then after a while, you see, there's something bigger, something weightier, something more significant that comes upon us, something more, more glorious. But the point is, there isn't anything holier than God. There isn't anything more glorious than God. You see, God's glory is the manifestation of his holiness. When the Bible speaks of the glory of God, it says we see him. We see his holiness. We see who he is. And we worship him. The uh, former atheist, Christopher Hitchens, and I say it that way, reverently, respectfully, because he's now dead. And now that he's dead, he is no longer an atheist. Scripture says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On earth, he was an atheist. When he died, he was no longer an atheist. He's lost, condemned, as far as we know. But no longer an atheist. But, but when he was an atheist, he would say, in debate, mocking God, <clears throat> Heaven or eternity, glory, must be the most boring time in a person's existence. Because all you do is give praise to God during that time. And he says this God is so egotistical that he won't even put a stop to it. He won't even say, stop that, go do something else. And he says, that's horrible on the part of humanity because it's just a boring, wasted time. It's horrible on the part of this God who will continue to receive this adoration. Now the flaw, if I may be so bold, the flaw in his thinking is that he doesn't realize the holiness of God. He doesn't realize that God being holy will captivate us for all of eternity. That there isn't anything, anyone 
in all of the universe, in our experience, in anything that we see or think of more holy than God. And so, yes, praise will always come from our lips. And yes, he is right to receive it because he is holy. He is glorious. And there's nothing better for a human being to do than to recognize that which is best, that which is holy, that which is like none other. Isaiah seeing that, you and I, need to glimpse that. Now you notice what happens when Isaiah sees this holiness of God. He sees himself in light of it. And and it says in the foundations, verse 4, of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. You see, everywhere God goes, he shakes it. The word glory means weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, not I'll be there in a minute weight, heavy. So much so that there's nothing weightier, nothing else matters at that point in time. When something weightier than what it hits, hits that which is less weighty, that which is less weighty, shakes. It just does. And so everywhere God shows up, everything shakes. On Mount Sinai, when when the people were there after they had left Egypt and they were getting the law, and, and God was there on the mountain, it shook. The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit shows up in power, Everything shakes. It's like a a tornado, a wind comes. Everything shakes when God shows up. And thus, everything shook at the temple. Everything shook in Isaiah's life. And he saw himself. And at that moment in time, it says here in this particular version that I read, the English Standard Version, it says, for I'm lost. In other versions, it says, I'm ruined. In other versions, it says, I'm coming undone. It basically means I'm blowing up, I'm falling apart, I'm being dismantled. There's nothing in me that isn't shaken at this point in time. My body's shaken, my mind's shaken, my emotions are shaking, shaken. Everything is shaken in me. Nothing is stable anymore that's part of me because I've seen the Lord of hosts. And he says, I've seen the Lord of hosts and the truth about me is that I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. And what he means by that, of course, is that everything that comes out of these lips of mine is unclean because everything which is in me is unclean. And I didn't recognize that when I was spewing forth stuff amongst this whole unclean group of people. But now that I'm spewing stuff in the presence of this one who is holy, I see that I'm unclean. I get it now. And when he says, I'm among a people of unclean lips, he wasn't saying, well, it's not my fault. Everybody's, you know, same boat. He was saying, there isn't any place for me to go. I can't run to them because they're just as unclean as I am. I'm stuck here in the presence of the holy. And he says, everything in me is now shaken. And that's the way we know that we are really encountering God. Oh, it doesn't mean we have to shake. It doesn't mean we have to fall to the ground or any of that. But we get it. We understand what it means. It means that everything now is different because of the very presence of God. I've encountered him. Everything's shaken. No longer business as usual. I can't ignore him. He's too weighty. This changes everything. I mean, if an elephant walks in the room, you notice it. Changed everything. If you happen to be sitting where the elephant wants to stand or sit, you would move. Why? Because it's weighty. When God shows up, everything changes. Everything changes because you can't not 
notice him. And when you get a glimpse of his glory, his holiness, then you're completely captivated, completely his, you see. And yet we are so, I'm so easily distracted. Idolatry is right around every corner. Because rather than being captivated with God, there's other things that seem more weighty than him at the moment. My fears seem more weighty than him at the moment rather than trusting him. My needs seem more weighty than him at the moment, so I want to solve it in some particular way that might be circumventing his will for my life. My time, what I want to do, my convenience, whatever that is, just more weighty, more important than God. And that's, of course, idolatry. It's right around the corner all the time. Isaiah had no thought of that at the moment because he realized what was happening in his own life. And then at that time, a coal came through the tongs of this seraphim, picked it up out of this altar. Now you you realize that when that coal was flying at Isaiah, he wasn't thinking what we're thinking. We've read the whole story. We get it. We understand. But in the Old Testament, fire coming at you was not for cleansing, but was for cursing. Fire in the Old Testament was the very presence of the wrath of God. And so here's Isaiah saying, I'm undone. I'm completely coming apart. I'm ruined. Fire's coming at me. I'm gone. But the unique thing about this coal was that it came from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. And so when this coal was applied to his lips, the very point of his sin, the very point of his confession, when this coal was applied to his lips, then he, the, the angel was able to say, your guilt is taken away right now because your sin has been atoned for. Atoned for meaning that your sin has been paid for, that this wrath of God that's against you now has been satisfied. It's been exhausted. It really has. And so there is Isaiah at one moment in time, completely undone and completely redone completely dismantled and completely reassembled all at once. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, the gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight, they themselves are accepted and righteous. So we can say that we are more wicked than we ever dared to believe but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope all at the very same time. Think about that. In the presence of God, our sin is revealed to us. And the truth of the matter is, we are people of unclean lips, unclean thoughts, unclean actions. And we don't realize that until we're in the presence of the holy. On a human scale, it happens all the time uh, when, uh, when freshman athletes come to the University of Kansas. In their minds, they're the best athlete they've ever seen. And they get here and they realize everybody's the best athlete they've ever seen. And all of a sudden, they become undone. And what happens then when they become undone? Well, then they become, as their coaches say, coachable. When we become undone, we realize that we're more wicked than we ever imagined. We really are. 
But then, because of the grace of Christ, our guilt is taken away as we trust in him. Our sin atoned for. So at that moment in time, as Keller puts it, we're more wicked than we ever imagined, but more accepted than we ever dared hope. He goes on to say this. This creates in us a new radical, a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. But on the other hand, the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions and character of your sin. We just, on the one hand, become more honest. As we're more honest, we become more ruined. As we're more ruined, we become more accepted. And we become humbled. We become teachable. And we can now listen to God because we've honestly said, I'm empty, fill me. I'm bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit. Now rule me. Give me the kingdom of heaven. And this is an ongoing thing in the life of the believer. That's why we worship every Sunday. That's why you come and go through this model that pulls us through from the holiness of God to our own confession to listening to and being sent out. That's why we do that week after week after week after week. That's the way God has established human beings to be. And one day in seven, we need to stop and gaze and get everything back in perspective to have this moment in time, this experience that informs every other day, you see. That's why we need it. Because things get weightier than God to us. Things appear more glorious than God to us. Things seem more holy to us than God to us. And we need once again to be humbled in his presence. John Flavel, 17th century Puritan preacher, put it like this. He says, when the corn is near ripe, it bows the head and stoops lower than when it was green. Now, I am not a farmer. My grandfather had a great garden, produced great corn. I never paid attention. I have no idea if this is true or not, but go with him on this. When the corn is near ripe, it bows its head. I assume that as it's getting near ripe, it gets heavier and turns down. Prior to that, just green, just sticking up. When the corn is near ripe, it bows its head and stoops lower than when it was green. When the people of God are near ripe for heaven, they grow more humble and self-denying than in the days of their first profession. The longer a saint goes, grows in the world, the better he is fully acquainted with his own heart and his obligations to God, both which are very humbling things. Paul had one foot in heaven when he called himself the chiefest of sinners and the least of saints. See, the the more we grow in this, you see, the more ruined we become all the time. The more dismantled, the more shook. But at the same time, we know more of the grace of God. It now covers all of that. We never knew it would even cover all of that, but it covers all of that. And so the grace of God comes, and what that does is it enables us to know we're more accepted than we could ever dare hope. 
Now you see what happens in the midst of all that is that when we hear this word of God, we can respond to it and go. This word that Isaiah heard from God that he was to preach, to proclaim to the people in in Judah was not an easy word. Basically, he was a prophet in the midst of times when the people were being judged. And so he said, in a sense, to Isaiah, you're going to tell these people truth and they're going to hate it and you. They won't respond. And so Isaiah says, really? How long do I got to do that? And God says, well, pretty much the whole time. What would enable him to do that? On the one hand, because he knew he deserved it too. And yet on the other hand, he knew the grace of God. And so you see, he could be both humble and confident all at the same time. See, if you're, if you're striving for a particular standard, you can't be humble and confident at the same time. Because if you meet the standard, you can be confident but not humble. But if you fail the standard, you can't be confident, but you can be humble. But with God, we're both. Why? Because we know we can't. But we know he can. And we're in him. So we're humble but confident. And God gives Isaiah this great promise. Verse 13. And he says, and a tenth, this is poetry, and a tenth will remain in it. It'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is in its stump. Centuries after this, the temple shook again. Centuries after the prophet Isaiah prophesied, centuries after he himself, Isaiah, experienced, saw, felt the temple shake to its very foundations. The temple shook again. The reason is that the holy seed had come again. Because you see, in the stump, this holy seed was, in fact, Jesus. And it was on that day, I read from Matthew 27 earlier in our worship. On that day, Jesus was being crucified. He was reliving the experience of Isaiah. It started in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was there that he knew that he was undone. It was there that he knew the guilt of sinners would be placed upon him. It was there that he knew he would face the wrath of God. It was there that he would see the holiness of his father in a way, in a condition, as one holding the guilt of sinners upon himself that he had never seen before. And so it was there in the garden that his heart was sorrowful. And then on that cross, he realized what the the impact of all of that, the impact of receiving the guilt of sinners upon himself, the impact of, of knowing the wrath of God. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? You're gone. I'm here. I, I'm undone. I'm ruined. And no coal was forthcoming. No coal was forthcoming because... He was the sacrifice that was burned, the wrath of God against him, so that we might be forgiven. And you remember at that point in time, 
the foundations of the temple shook. Why? Because the weightiness of God was present really in that place. And when the presence of God came in that place, the threshold of the, of the, of the, of the, of the temple shook, the foundation shook. And you remember what happened on that day that Jesus was crucified, this, this curtain that kept the people out of the very presence of God opened. And at that point in time, everyone who would know themselves to be more wicked than they ever imagined now would be more accepted into the very presence of God than they ever dared hope. You see, it's it's that. We long to see the holiness of God. And as we see the holiness of God, we see ourselves in light of the holiness of God. And we really get it. Ruined, undone, dismantled. But then we see the grace of God in Jesus. And then he rebuilds us. So that we're more wicked, but more accepted. Thus, secure. And it's at that point in time that we can say, I've nothing, fill me. I've nothing, recreate me. Teach me. I'll go. I'll serve you. I'll worship you. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And when we do this, we remember the holiness of God. And we remember the wrath of God against sin as we see it upon Jesus. And we remember at that point in time that the temple shook and the curtain opened so that through him we might enter into the very presence of God and be rebuilt, dismantled, remantled, ruined, rebuilt. God really can put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's us. So we enter into the very presence of God. And we enter into that presence in awe and wonder in the midst of his holiness. And we're captivated by it. And we say, all right, now fill me, teach me. I'll go, meaning I'll serve you. I'll I'll worship you. I'll do this with joy. This will be my whole life. Nothing will interfere. Nothing will compromise. And we renew that week after week after week after week. That's how we're wired. This is our renewal, our moment. This is our time when we stop and gaze. This is our time when we see the holiness of God. This is our time when we see the evil of sin and our own wickedness. This is a time when we admit our need for grace. This is our time when we confess our sins. This is our time when we know that we're more accepted than we could ever dare hope. This is our time to listen. This is our time to be sent. Let's pray.
Father. Pray for me and for us even now. Lord Jesus, come. This is your table. Please, I pray, set aside this bread, this juice in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of Jesus. Enable us, God, to know your holiness. Enable us to know your wrath. Enable us to know the grace that comes through Jesus Christ that we may not experience that wrath, but rather life. Enable us to come to grips with our own sin. Enable us to receive your grace. Enable us to know that though more wicked than we could ever imagine, we're more accepted than we could ever have hoped. Secure in you, we listen. Help us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who have been undone, all those who know your ruin, all those who have been shaken, all those who have been dismantled, all those who know themselves to be sinners in the sight of God, without his, without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And to all those who now know, though dismantled, rebuilt, though know yourself to be more wicked than you ever imagined, now know yourself to be more accepted than you ever hoped, we believe and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And then all those who desire now to live consistent with that profession that is, here am I, send me. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, remember, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth is filled with his glory. Please come.